Well, today we embark on a sermon series that's going to take us into the month of May. Uh, It's 10 weeks. I I don't normally preach this long a series, but I really wanted to do this one. It'll take us through Lent and beyond. By now, a lot of you that have been here know that I love the Bible. I believe you can trust your life to this story. And I say story on purpose because I believe it is one big story that even though many authors over many centuries were inspired to pen their part of this story, it still comes out as one big whole. And and I think that to be a Christian and to read the Bible, you've got to get a sense of this bigger picture of the Bible to know where your place is in it. And anytime you read the Bible, to know what you're reading, where it fits in this story. So I have preached a series about what I call the four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And in November, because I was doing this idea of the story with our youth that were joining the church, I did a sermon where I tried to tell the whole story of the Bible in about 13 minutes. And I made it. It was about 12 minutes and 41 seconds, if I remember correctly. I did it. But what I wanted to do here was was take a little deeper dive into this story of the Bible and and to to think about what, what I'm calling salvation history which is this history of God's saving work in the world. And in the Bible, it sort of comes in epics. It sort of happens early on in in, uh, Adam and Eve and creation. It moves through this man, Abraham and his family. We have judges in there. We have exile and we have Jesus, which we'll be getting to about Palm Sunday and Easter, if I timed this out right. And uh, so we're going to try to grasp the major epics of this story and take a little deeper Dive. So today we're going to begin where all beginnings should start, in the beginning. The first few chapters of Genesis set the stage for the entire story. It sets up the whole story. It's kind of like the scrolling yellow words at the beginning of Star Wars, right? So you know where we are in the story and you know where the story is supposed to be going. That's really what Genesis is. And a lot of times we miss it because we we read Genesis and we instantly want to have all kinds of debates about creation and evolution and historicity. And and we sort of miss this larger part that Genesis is playing in the whole story. The question is, what is wrong with our world and how is God putting it back together? Now, most ancient creation stories, and we we have a number of them from from different places and different periods, but most of them are very violent. In the famous Babylonian creation story called Enuma Elish, the god Marduk kills his mother in battle and then uses her, her body in two parts to be the water above and the water below for creation. Okay, Most of the creation stories that we have from the ancient world are very violent, And they are meant to show the power and authority uh, of that God. But this God, when you read the book of Genesis, is not like that. His motives and his methods are different. This God does not create out of blood or out of vanity to show off his own power, but he creates out of care. There's no violence. He calls things into existence with his voice. I encourage you this week, you need to go back and read it because we didn't read Genesis 1 through 4 in front of everybody this morning. That'd be the whole service. But go back and read and watch for some of these things that I want to bring out to you. First of all, there's an emphasis on bringing order 
order to creation. In Genesis, there's sort of this chaotic mess. Okay, water is sort of hovering and we're not sure quite what to do with it. But God brings order. He separates. Okay, if you remember your, your vacation Bible school uh, or your Sunday school classes, on day one, he takes the light and the darkness and he separates them. On day two, he takes the waters above and the waters below, all this blue stuff, and he makes sky and he makes oceans. He makes waters out of it. On day three, he takes land and separates that from the waters. Okay, so there's order. All this stuff that was kind of blurred together, God separates and puts order in. And then he goes back and fills those things. So remember, day one, sun and moon fill the... On day one, we get light and darkness. On day four, the sun and the moon and the stars fill the skies. Okay, on day two, he separates the waters. On day five, we get birds and we get fish. Okay, he's ordering, and then he goes to day, day four, five, and six, and he fills those things. Okay, on day three, he made the land separate from the water. On day six, he fills it with creation, with, with animals, with beasts, and with creepy things that creep is actually how the, the, uh, the Hebrew says it. Creepy things that creep. If you've ever seen a spider or a millipede, you're like, that's a creepy thing that creeps. Like, that's a pretty good description, actually. Okay, but what's, what's God doing? He's ordering. Okay, he's got this chaos. He's ordering it, and then he's filling it. And then on the seventh day, he rests. This God creates so that he can enjoy what he has created. He makes things good, but he also has more plans for this ordering and this filling. Okay, he makes it good, but he doesn't make it perfect. He makes it with a plan to move forward. But who's going to help him with this plan? Well, he's, he's got to make something special to do that work. And he makes human beings. None of the animals can continue this creative work in the world. So he makes first Adam, then Eve, to continue the work of ordering and filling. So here we go. You get a garden. Now tend to the garden. Order it. Take this field that's just random and plant crops in it. Order and fill. Okay, produce fruit, but also produce children. Have more of you so that you can fill this world that you are working in. This is how creation was meant to be. And this is where God's image in us, it really comes from. It's not like you and I look like God. Maybe some of us look more like God and some of us don't. No, your image of God is because you and I were meant to order and fill in this world. Okay, so if you run a business and you have this chaotic group of people that you're trying to manage, you're trying to order it, get, get them all lined up and fill. And if you're a second grade teacher, guess what you're doing? You're trying to order these second graders and fill their minds. It's, we are always ordering and filling because that is what God made us to do. And things are good. Even though Adam and Eve are naked, they're flawed, they still have more about the knowledge of good and evil that they are supposed to learn over time, they're not ashamed of where they are. They continue, they don't know any better, and they are just close and trusting God who walks around the garden and talks to them. But it doesn't stay this way. A serpent comes walking up to them. Sounds weird, but that's how the story goes. The serpent comes walking up to them. And questions God's words and God's motives. Did God really tell you? Did God really mean? 
God just knows what you're going to be like. And what does he tempt them? The ultimate temptation to be like God. God knows that you will be like him. The temptation is don't trust God. Trust yourself. Be your own God. Don't wait for God to slowly teach you good and evil. Seize control now. Don't trust God's timing, but but do it on your own. And they do it. They disobey God and take the fruit, and they are suddenly, if you read the story again, they're suddenly aware of their nakedness. And now they're ashamed. They go hide from God in the bushes, and they sew a leafy loincloth so that they would be covered up. Then when God questions them, they, they blame each other. Like, well, God, it was this, this woman here. You gave me this woman, and now she's... But, oh, no, God, it was the serpent. When the serpent came to me, there's a loss of innocence, a loss of taking responsibility, a loss of, of knowing who we are in God so that now we're ashamed of everything that we are not. And because of this, God curses the two things we are supposed to be doing. What are we supposed to be doing? Ordering and filling. Now, any of the ordering and filling we're doing, are, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cursed. There's going to be toil in our labor. And in our labor, even the English word to this day, we can talk about labor in the fields, and we can talk about labor of childbirth. Ordering and filling are both broken. And this is what we call in the Bible sin. Sin is not the act of taking the fruit. Okay, that, that is a sin. But real sin is this idea that we are not right with God. That we fall short, that we miss the mark. And the, the term sin is a Hebrew term related to archery. Okay, where here's the target and you sinned. Okay, how much did you sin? How much did you go off of your target? Some of you may have gone a little bit off target. Some of you may have gone a lot off target. But we have all sinned, as Paul said, and fallen short of God's glory. That's the problem. The problem is we're not how we're supposed to be. The problem is we still trust ourselves to be God. We still try to do all these things in our life as if we're in charge, as if God doesn't really matter. We live in this current state of rebellion, being like God. And I want to choose how I order and how I fill. I don't want God to tell me how I have to order and fill. And we all live that life since the garden. We call this the fall. That the high place of humanity, the high purpose of creation, the image of God is up here and we have fallen way short. And if you continue reading in Genesis, it goes from bad to worse, right? Because in the next generation, Cain kills Abel. A few generations later, things are so bad, we get a flood. After that, we have the Tower of Babel and, and language is confused so that so that we can't do more harm when we come together, right? In community, sin gets worse, not better. And the, the question then that the Bible asks is what is God going to do about this? What is God going to do about this? Because whatever humanity is doing about this is only making it worse. And if you keep reading the Bible, it stays that way. Anything humanity tries to do to fix this problem makes it worse, but what is God going to do? I remember when I was in college, I never left my faith, but I sort of tried on life without much of a faith. I think everybody sort of has to do that. And I went to Grove City College. It's a great place to rebel. What kind of trouble are you going to get into, right? 
This wasn't that much trouble to be had there. You could find it, but... One of the things that God used to sort of smack me back in line, and it's really how I see it, God smacking me sort of back in line, uh, he, he used many things. But one of the reasons that I really came back to my faith was, was in thinking about Genesis. And when I looked at my life and my tendency to want to do things my way, and the way I had trouble getting along with other people, and the way I didn't want to order and fill and the, the way work was such, a, was such a struggle and so much stress. And even when I did a good job, I didn't feel like I accomplished very much. What I started to say is I was studying sociology and psychology and philosophy. And what I found was, of all those things, it was Genesis that explained me and explained human behavior better than anything I'd ever seen. Because aren't we all like this? We're all sinful. We're all fallen. We spend our lives hiding from God and blaming each other. We have a broken relationship with work. I mean, what the things that God has for me to do are sort of wrapped in work. Okay, they're, 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 they come with, with work boots. And I've got to actually work to pull things off. Even things that should be joyful and fulfilling are often not. How often do we really feel the true edge of this Genesis story? where we live this fall every day, how often do we question God's leadings and God's intentions? Right? I know I'm supposed to do this, God, but it's not working out for me. Maybe I should do what everybody else is doing. It seems to be working out for them. How often are we tempted to, to do it our way, to fall again and again and again? How often are we ashamed of who we are, of our past, of what we've done, of what has been done to us? How often are we hiding in the bushes because we know we're not good enough? How many of us have voices of serpents in our own heads? Maybe they sound like our parents or a teacher or an ex that said terrible things about us. Perhaps they're just our own inner voices, our own inner serpents reminding us of how broken we are, how worthless we are, how unlovable, how ugly, how unreliable. And how much of our lives have been about leafy loincloths? Like even though we know we're really broken, we, we can say, well, at least I go to church, right? And we try to cover up what's wrong with us by at least I'm not as bad as that person. We'd be good, we are good church people, but really we're hiding in the bushes. We don't want anybody's help. We don't want, anybody to, to, we don't want to need anybody because we want to be self-secure. But, but all we're doing is dressing ourselves in a leafy loincloth. See, the fall is very real. And we feel it all the time. But, but we got to remember, even though this is the first step in a 10-part series, we know how this sermon series ends up, right? Because we've been to Easter. We know that this sin, this fall, is not the last word. That Jesus is going to work through this family of Abraham. He's going to work through this people of Israel. And when the fullness of time comes, he's going to come and he's going to take on all that brokenness. He's going to take on it and he's going to take on our shame. The shame of the cross. Then he's going to rise. He's going to rise us out of our fall. God goes to great lengths to undo this fall. He saves us. And we really got to get this word save right. Okay? You can hear it more when we say salvation. Okay? How many of you used to have a salve? You ever got a salve from the doctor? A salve, people would say. 
right? We use the terms ointment all the time, right? But it used to be you'd get, a, you'd get something to heal. That God isn't just saving us, he's salving us. He's solving us. He's healing us. God is healing you. That is salvation history. Not just saving you from eternity, going to heaven, but I'm talking about right now, the broken parts of your life, Jesus is weaving back together. God is saving you, but he is salving you. He's salvaging you. And so those serpent voices in in your head are lies. That's not how Christ sees you, as unloving, as unlovable, as worthless. Yeah, you're a sinner, but you're also a saint. Because when God looks at you, he looks at you through the eyes of Christ. God does not see you the way you are. God sees you wrapped in Christ. So you are perfect, and you are holy, and you are good, and you are of immense worth. And you are loved. And man, is that hard for us to buy into. Anybody? Because those serpent voices are so loud in my head. So today, I want to give you an experience of this. Okay, we're going to come forward for communion. And uh, we're going to come down by way of the center aisle. And, And these three mirrors, these are serpent voices. Okay, And so what I want you to do, I want you to come forward and you're going to look at yourself in the mirror through these words. And they say, ugly, sinner, broken, weak, selfish, ashamed, evil, foolish. So it's going to take a little longer to do communion today because I want you to actually pause here and read all these words. And some may hit you hard and some may not connect with you at all and that's fine. But I want you to see yourself in the sin model, Right? And hear those voices of your past telling you you are these things. And then I want you to go take communion. Take the bread, take the cup, remember the sacrifice of Christ in your life. And then there's another set of mirrors. Okay, so you'll come down the middle and then we normally go to the outside. And these ones are words that are good words. Beautiful, holy, saved, Christ-like, hopeful, faithful, strong. And I want you to know these are the true words. These are the words that Christ sees you in because of the sacrifice that he made. So today, I want you to have the experience of that. I want you to look at yourself in the mirrors and read these words, take communion, and then see yourself as Christ sees you. And understand that that, those words of the fall are not true anymore because Christ has made amends. He has saved you. He has salved you. He has salvaged you. And you watch, one of these words may sting a little bit. One of these good words you may have a lot of trouble accepting. But maybe that's the word you need to pray about and focus on this week. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup, poured it out, gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink you all of it. Paul adds the words, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes again. And I want you to really think about this. Everybody he offers the table to are going to at least run away, if not deny him, 
if not betray him. And still God's love and grace are extended to them at this table. So you may not feel like these words, but I'm telling you by God's grace, these are the true words of how Christ sees you. And maybe these are the words that you need to see yourself into. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to hear not the sinful stuff that's been true about us in the past, but to see ourselves through your eyes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.